Welcome to the Urban Grace Weekly Podcast. This week we talked about the spiritual practice of writing. We changed up the structure of our service, so instead of a traditional sermon, I gave a bit of an introduction before we heard from a panel of writers who shared their work and reflected on the ways that writing is a form of spirituality. We had a little technical difficulty, so I'm going to recap the introduction before we get to the panel discussion. Our focus on writing is a part of a summer series on spirituality. This series was born out of a growing awareness that we spend a lot of time discussing what we believe about God, but we don't spend much time talking about how we connect to God. Our lack of attention is not because we all have amazing spiritual lives and we don't need any help. In fact, it might even be the opposite, that we feel disconnected or ashamed that our prayer life has become rather dull. This, of course, doesn't apply to everyone, but even if we have a great, engaged spiritual life, it feels wise to keep learning about spirituality because spirituality animates our faith and connects us to God. And Christianity has a rich tradition of spirituality that many of us might not have learned about. So throughout the summer, we're exploring Christian spirituality. And today we're talking about writing as a spiritual practice. Now, now personally, I've always loved writing. But for much of my life, it, I, I sort of thought it had limited spiritual value. I believed this until I took a class on writing as faith practice with the Reverend Dr. Yolanda Pierce. And by the way, if you've never heard Yolanda Pierce, she's an amazing womanist theologian. She's the dean of Howard Divinity School, and she's a great Twitter follow. So check her out. Dr. Pierce began our class by telling us that our creativity and our imagination could be inspired by God. She called it divine imagination. She sort of challenged us, asking, why do you believe that the Holy Spirit will guide you in prayer, but not in creative writing? And, and none of us were foolish enough to, to challenge her, but I think we knew the answer. I think many of us approached our faith with anxiety that we might say or believe the wrong things. For most of us, getting a job at a church depended on believing the right things. So the idea that we make up stories about God and then call those stories divine it just seemed dangerous. But what we would learn in that class was that our reluctance to embrace divine imagination revealed to us that, that parts of our religion was confining. There were places we just weren't supposed to go. But when we embraced imagination, we were acknowledging that we're not like making some truth claim, we're not making a theological argument. If we were using our imagination, then finding the right answers was not the point. The point was to explore new possibilities with God. And for me, at that time in my life, it was, it was exactly what I needed. I was working at a psychiatric hospital as a chaplain, and it was, it was messing with me. Because my job 
was to work with patients who had religious delusions, patients who believed they were Jesus or Mary Magdalene, patients who believed the devil was telling them to hurt themselves. And my job was to help them not believe. They would describe these supernatural experiences that sounded like they came right from the Bible. They would tell me they could hear God talking to them. And I'd help them see that this was actually mental illness. For someone training to be a pastor, it hit a little close to home. So I started writing about it. I journaled. But I would drift back and forth between actual experiences and my own imagination. I imagined what could be instead of just reporting what was. And in that writing, I found a way through. I found how I could integrate my patients' delusions, their mental illness, and, and their genuine contact with God. And you know, I've been praying about this for months. But it was creative writing that enabled me to be a pastor to my patients and to hang on to my own faith. And this was not just creative writing. This was divine imagination. Dr. Pierce helped me embrace my spiritual potential in a form that, that people of faith had relied on for millennia, because we didn't just write, we, we read. She, she got me into Flannery O'Connor. She taught us about rabbis who use their divine imagination to write midrash, which are like backstory that explain difficult passages in the Bible. I even learned that the Bible is full of this kind of creative writing and divine imagination. So, at this point in our service, because I've been doing my little introduction, we heard a little bit of that creative writing in the Bible. Abigail Viscata Perez read three sections of Job that I'll give a little sampling of. Because the first section begins, it's just Job 1, there was a man. In the land of Uz, whose name was Job. He was an honest person, a person of absolute integrity. He feared God and avoided evil. He was the greatest man in the East. But one day, the story continues, Satan approached God, claiming that, the God, that Job only loved God because God had blessed Job. So God tells Satan, look, all Job has is within your power. Only don't stretch out your hand against him. Then, all of a sudden, the next chapter switches to poetry. And we hear verses like, Why is light given to the person whose way is hidden? My groans become my bread. My roars pour out like water. This takes us into 40 chapters of beautiful poetry on suffering before an epilogue that sounds just like Job chapter 1. The book finishes, Then the Lord changed Job's future when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord doubled all Job's earlier positions. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw four generations of his children. Then Job died 
old and satisfied. And the reason for these sort of drastic stylistic shifts is because the book of Job begins with a prologue from an ancient folk tale about two gods who are competing like rivals. But then, you know, it switches to poetry before a happy ever after ending. And the reason for this, this structural difference is that a, a Jewish person is thinking about suffering. And rather than just writing, here's what God thinks about suffering, this person takes an old folktale, or some scholars think it was a play, and he or she uses it like a writing prompt. The poet uses their divine imagination to explore the ways that humans respond to suffering and how God responds to suffering. We, we have in the Bible a beautiful example of creative writing to explore one's faith. And really, that's what we hope to encourage everyone to do in our service. We then uh, heard Walker Sherman reflect on a song he wrote, and then we sang that song. We then heard from a panel of writers before spending some time writing based on prompts that uh, had been prepared and were in our bulletin. At this point in the podcast, our audio will now skip ahead to the panel discussion. On that panel discussion, we have Lori Ann Grover, who's the author of 13 books for children, young adults, and adults. Earlier in the service, Lori read our kids her upcoming book, I Love All of Me, which was recently named a best book of the season by School Library Journal. We then hear from Kristen Foster, who's the author of three young adult novels, and we finish up with the Reverend Abigail Vizcarra Perez, who actually helped organize this service and guided us through the writing section. So the audio will pick up right after I've introduced our writers and I've asked Lori Ann, how do you worship through your writing? So here it is. The first would be uh, when an idea comes to me, there's a sense of awe, like I see something beautiful, or I hear a truth, and there's that sense that I have to write this thing. It's a, it's a drive, um, and I feel God's presence in that moment, and it's, it's wonderful. The second would be when I'm writing for adults or young adults, and I go into those really dark places from my own life and mine that material, or I think of like a grand social horrible injustice or wrong like gender side. Um, so I go back and I sit in that moment with so much sorrow and darkness, and I bear witness to what happened, um, and I grieve. What I've learned is that when I'm doing that, God is beside me grieving as well. And that's a huge comfort um, to learn. But it's a new learning for me. <laughs> um, so that's, that's been wonderful. 
the third was kind of a surprise to think of. Uh, when I have a novel, I have to go inside every character's head, which is really easy for that main character because it's usually me in some form or other. Um, but there's always a villain, right? An antagonist. And I've got to go in there as well because they can't be flat cardboard characters. I've got to understand where this person came from. Say my father, you know, what's his backstory? What are his pains um, before he left? Um, so to go into that space, and when I do that and I explore, what happens is I see the humanity of the person. I see the image of God. It doesn't take away the badness that they've done. Um, and that needs to be you know, held accountable. But I'm able to, to see the person as loved by God in the image of God which is great. You're, you're basically removing the other. So those are the three ways that I sense God's presence. Um, and then when I get done with writing, I had to go back out into public, living my normal everyday life. I apply those three things again that I've practiced in my private writing. I see the awe of God around me. I feel the presence of God in the darkness. And hopefully, it may be a little bit hard, uh, but remove that sense of other in somebody that's so bewildering, you know. Uh, but yeah, so those are how I'm blessed through writing to commune with God. Awesome. Thank you so much. It also sort of strikes me, too, that like as I read about writers, about spirituality, awe is usually the first chapter of a book on spirituality. Um, and so much of even the writing about like the Christian life that I hear is often around seeing the image of God in the other. That's one of our friends is like, yeah, that's my basic sermon every week. Yes. How do we see the image of God in others? Yes. So, oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Um, well, I think uh, we'll ask Christian a pretty similar question. Uh, how writing connects you spiritually or like how is writing a spiritual practice? Something in that direction. Yeah. Um, so... When you asked me that, when you and Amanda asked me that a, a few days ago, I had a moment of panic because I write primarily about, like, dragons and ghosts and werewolves. <laughs> so so I, told, I, like, specifically told Amanda, I was like, do you want me to read a passage about werewolves? Is that legal <laughs> in church? Um, um, but then I sat down and I thought about it, and I thought about, like, that question of how is writing a spiritual practice and why it sort of made me anxious to even think about that. And that's primarily because when I was a kid trying to write stories about werewolves and dragons and ghosts, um, much of the adult Christians in my life were like, but where's Jesus in this? And I would have to sort of panic and backpedal and be like, I don't know, he's here. And then I just make something up that felt like a ripoff of Narnia. And, <laughs> and I'd be like, there you go, it's Jesus. Um, <laughs> and as an adult trying to make a living as a writer, trying to sell my writing, I kind of just gave up putting Jesus in the books at all. And, um, you know, started writing about dragons and being unapologetic about it. And it was at that point um, that I stopped trying to forcibly add spirituality into my writing that I found spirituality in my writing because I realized 
that the books that had mattered the most to me, the books that had shown me the image of God, were never Christian books. They were never books that had intentionally shoved God into fiction. Um, not that there's anything wrong with those books. I, I wasn't probably reading the right ones as a kid. They were the ones that were given to me, though. And so when I found Jesus in writing, it was because I snuck books under the covers, and I read Harry Potter, and I read um, The Lord of the Rings when I was too young to understand it. And I read... Um, I read, I read a lot, I read a lot of dragon books, <laughs> um, but those were the books that showed me who, where my, my strength and spirituality lied as a, as a woman when I watched warrior girls killing monsters, and it was when I um, saw, you know, epic quests to defeat the bad thing that I saw, oh, this is how, this is how you do this, this is how you battle depression, this is how you battle injustice in the world. Um, and I realized as an adult too, coming back to scripture and coming back to the gospel that, that I had been lied to. Like Jesus was a professional storyteller. He did it constantly. He did it for crowds of thousands. He did not tell overly spiritual stories that were, um, you know, about church and about God. He wrapped them up in stories about women with lamps and, people burying talents in the ground and farmers. He wrapped up spirituality in very everyday things, which was why nobody knew what to do with him. He didn't look spiritual on the outside and he didn't speak spiritually about um, things because he wanted people to understand them. And so so as an adult, I feel like my, my approach to spirituality in my writing is kind of, so I realize I'm backtracking a bit but like similarly to Lori I feel like when someone or something catches my attention and and makes me really emotional <laughs> um and I can't get it out of my head I then take another step back and look at what kind of strange magic can I wrap that feeling in and convey it in a way that um kind of surprises people because there's one it's one thing to just write something like you'd said about your your teacher like it's one thing to write down this is what god thinks of suffering and it's another thing to write something fanciful that shows a character suffering in ways that are engaging and then at the end of the book you are surprised by the fact that you learned something <laughs> so um yeah i don't know if that that's, answers no that's that wonderful and it actually did that with that, the, one of the other things that my professor said our first day was in, in a way that was so real because you could see it in her face. She just said, Toni Morrison saved me. She saved me. Maybe I'm not supposed to say that because Jesus saved me, but Toni Morrison saved me. So, um, is there, Kristen's about to share a piece. Is there anything that you want to say before <laughs> you share it? Or um, This is not about werewolves, but it is kind of about wolves. Um, and I wrote, it's a, <laughs> I read a lot about wolves and dragons. It's a, it's a poem that I wrote um, while trying to sort of process a little bit of, of this concept about how nice are you allowed to be in church um, and how, how honest are we allowed to be with each other. And um, this is kind of my answer to that. And the poem's called Tame. 
Should I go up to the podium? You, whichever you prefer. No, I'll just sit here. <laughs> Come to the table. Bring the mess of your bitterness and need. Rip it to pieces. We will share and eat. Come to the table. Shake the domestication from your hide. Those manners robbed you of honesty and cursed you with a sad, mewling cry. But it's a pretty lie, my pup, fit for titillating crowds as you hold back the wild and smile. No teeth to speak of, no war in your eyes. But in this pack, we howl like we mean it, loud as you please, with a hint of rage in the rise and fall of voices keening. We are banshees, our songs threaten the sky, and the most polite visitors excuse themselves to indulge a shiver in their spines. Come to the table. Leave behind the niceties. We'll take your violent need if that's what erupts when the dinner guests arrive. Slide lips from teeth and snarl like the wolf you are. The winter was hard and we know it, so come hungry. Snap the bones, bury your jaws deep in meat. Lick the bloody bits from your cheeks and growl when the others circle and sniff. It's your feast. You've earned the right to be mean and they'll get over it. And anyway, we were all pups once. We all felt the sting of the cage and the slap that came when we bared our teeth and sang off key. It hurts to be tame, but you're free here. So embrace the pain. The politeness that isolated you is banned from this family because lone wolf is just an expression. The best of us are brothers and sisters adopted into grace. The wildness is only worthwhile when there's plenty to eat. But in the dark seasons, when the snows are deep and grief is great, we come to the table until the ache begins to wane like the moon. Can you say something now? I don't want to follow that. Sorry. No. <laughs> if I turn on my microphone. This is why you gave me the tall chair. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I could just defer to you. I'm like, uh, No, that was super powerful. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. I'm just trying to recompose here. I was, was in that with you. Um, <laughs> so, Abigail. Um, <laughs> Yes, Ben. <laughs> um, what about for you? Like, how has writing been a spiritual practice or a form, an expression of spirituality in your life? Uh, writing helps me to order the chaos. So the insert from your bulletin uh, was conceived of this idea that we need guides in order to sort of approach the page. And that's one of the things that's helped me is that I've had teachers and people in my life encourage me to just think about it like lines and circles. Just put something down. It comes from your head, through your heart, through your fingers. And that way, when something is a really big emotion or really chaotic, I can kind of put it somewhere outside of my body. And, and so when we talk about spirituality as something that makes the intangible tangible, or something that helps us to embody grace, or something that helps us to express the divine from within, that's, what, that's the best way I can think to do it. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, would, you, would you like to share a little bit of your writing with us? Yeah, I can do this. Um, it's, it's funny, my daughter learned to read this last year, and it's the weirdest thing. Because, you know, she's, like, so engaged. 
And then the way she expresses this learning is by um, the same way that she would talk about the natural world. So, you know, when I asked her before, what color are the trees? And she says, green and sticks. You know, or like now I ask her, okay, she says, well, how do I write thank you? And I say, well, green and sticks. Like, I, this is the way we talk about these things. Uh, so I wrote this little poem to try and explain how she's jumped from reading trees to reading lines and circles that have other meaning, and it's blowing her mind. It's almost like she's been reading this whole time, and I didn't know it. It's called Spare Ellipses. Ellipses is the three dots. She has told me before the pebbles on the shore are simply spare ellipses. She learned to read, and I realize she has known. The knots in the planks are punctuation for the stretched type face of pattern in the grained boards beneath rough-hewn hands and calloused hopes. She has always the understanding that yellow tanager sings the report, reading the blossoms and cotyledons as vowels and consonants, respectfully, on the orchard page. I would have guessed, had I imagined, she learned punctuation from the freckles that formed under my kisses, where her skin cautiously absorbed my sunlit hopes that became melanized while she slept in wept moonlight. She sings the words from beyond the pages of love songs and lullabies to herself knowing full well they are the same thing. Can I put an amen after that? <laughs> yeah. Well, all, each of you, thank you so much. I feel so grateful um, for everything that you've shared.